Hey, Popaganda listeners, here's a quick message from our sponsor, Oregon State University. Earn your women, gender, and sexuality studies degree online. Explore the role of race, social class, age, ability, appearance, and sexual identity. Play in women's everyday lives. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Chaos. We spend so much energy trying to avoid it. Both in politics and in our personal lives, things rarely go as planned. But that doesn't stop us from trying, from willing and working to make things and people and countries fall in line. But often, chaos is just what we need. After all, there are a lot of things that could use some shaking up. In an essay published last year in The Nation, author Toni Morrison wrote in praise of chaos. She said, like failure, chaos contains information that can lead to knowledge, even wisdom. So instead of running from chaos and fearing it, we can learn from chaos. After all, the world tends toward upheaval and evolution. Nothing stays static, not even stones. Maybe we can embrace chaos as the most constant force in our universe. Chaos is the theme of our new print issue, which is hitting subscribers' mailboxes right about now. And this issue highlights three writers from the issue, talking about politics, the human side of so-called natural disasters, and the power of male tears. Stay tuned. This story begins with an earthquake. I was alone. The walls are trembling. You can hear the building kind of move. Last summer, writer and activist um, Bonnie Amor was in Quito, Ecuador, when the city was rocked by an earthquake. Bonnie was there, in part, to report on the aftermath of another huge earthquake that had struck the country in April, hitting the provinces of Manabí and Esmeraldas especially hard and killing at least 673 people. So when all of Quito started shaking under Bonnie's feet, Bonnie Amor feared for the worst. You know, I remember this April talking to a friend who actually lost family members due to the earthquake in Ecuador. And I was just like, I can't imagine what it's like to just be walking down the street and the earth beneath you just shakes. It's just like kind of like unthinkable. So when it happened, I was just I, I, I feared for my life. That's the first thing that I think like, oh, shit, you know, I could die. This is the end. You know, you never know what's going to happen. And then the shaking stopped. Bonnie wasn't sure what to do. Go outside and try to find friends? Stay inside alone? The choices were limited. I deal with a lot of, like, physical disabilities that kind of, like, limit my movement and, like, my access to travel in certain ways. So uh, at that point in August, like, I, I could barely walk. I was having a lot of problems with my mobility. 
And Quito is like a, a city of diagonals. Like it's just walking up and down mountains. It's super high altitude. Like uh, I was with my cane. Um, so my friend's apartments that would like people were inviting me and stuff from my family that was like on the other side of the country. It just wasn't accessible. So I made a decision to, um, to stay by myself and sleep by myself. And it was, you know, I was light sleeping. It was really hard. All alone, Bonnie was clearly upset and kept thinking about how it could have been so much worse. You know, I'm shaking. I'm just like, I'm just trying to be calm. But, you know, my initial reaction was just crying because, you know, I, I felt safe in the moment. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I also felt like I had, I don't know, I had a lot of privilege and access that a lot of people who are affected by these um, quote-unquote natural disasters aren't. Natural disasters. That's the phrase people often use to describe disasters like earthquakes, floods, and fires. We usually use it without thinking. But as Bonnie Amore points out, a lot of the devastation wrought in these situations is not natural. It's made by humans. In Bitch's Chaos issue, Bonnie delves into this idea in an article called Unnatural Disasters, The Human Cost of Human-Caused Disasters. And a lot of these places that are most targeted and most affected by uh, quote-unquote natural disasters were like made environmentally vulnerable to those effects intentionally through environmentally racist policy. While disaster can strike randomly, of course, humans often play a role in what we think of as purely natural disasters. Deforestation contributes to mudslides. The industrial process of fracking has led to a huge jump in earthquakes. Floods increasingly happen in areas along coastlines that have been eroded by human water management projects and oil projects. Low-lying areas are even more vulnerable to floods because of rising sea levels caused by climate change. It just decimates the coast. Um, and all of the natural kind of shore barriers that the earth has to protect it, protect land from floods and stuff like that. People in coastal regions tend to be historically, you know, black and brown people in, in uh, coastal regions historically were, you know, fisher folk working um, off of the land, subsisting off of small scale fishery and kind of living, working with the ecosystems that, you know, are you know, part of their ancestral lands. And those people are, you know, the most marginalized. So we, we see these set of factors that come into play before these disasters hit, like um, commercial overfishing off of the coastlines. There's like these invasive industries, corporate industries, a lot of times illegal industries that come in and just take over the coast and um, of, you know, places in the global south. Uh, and um, that just really decimates the ecosystems on those coasts, making it more vulnerable to floods and things like that. So those people, I mean, you know, that's environmental racism. And in all disasters, the brunt of the devastation is borne by the most vulnerable people, the people who have the fewest resources to escape and who have fewer resources to rebuild. So-called, quote, natural disasters are not neutral acts of God, the very human components of color, class, and gender play huge roles in the chaos. In the relief effort after Ecuador's April earthquake, Bonnie and other organizers saw that many of the people most hurt by the quake, black and trans residents of Ecuador's coastal cities, weren't getting help. Bonnie was among activists who fundraised to send money directly to the people and queer-led organizations that needed support. People who needed stuff the most did not get it. And that's how it happens. That's how it goes. As Bonnie points out in their article, Unnatural Disasters, 
These kinds of DIY efforts and small group fundraisers played a bigger role in the relief efforts in Ecuador than official government programs. The newspaper El País reported that 83% of the shelters that sprang up after the quake were DIY efforts. Another paper reported that 6,500 Ecuadorians were staying in official shelters, while 22,500 were staying in unofficial ones. In times of disaster, the most vulnerable people relied on each other and on their communities for support. The world saw similar dynamics play out with Hurricane Katrina. As researchers for the U.S. Geological Survey have determined, the coastal areas of Louisiana and Alabama that were hit by Hurricane Katrina have been made more susceptible to massive flooding thanks to oil and gas companies' rapid destruction of the native wetlands, whose mangroves and plant life are usually buffers between the land and the sea. A giant Army Corps of Engineers canal built to help the shipping industry also destroyed those buffering wetlands. And of course, the Bush administration cut the budget for levee repair, leaving the city's infrastructure vulnerable to, quote, natural disasters. All of this adds up to a clear picture. While the hurricane was made of wind and water, humans played key roles in its destructive impact. What Katrina showed us was that it, ha- it can happen in the United States, in a place where we have all these resources and all this access and the richest place in the world. And, you know, this is the country that uses up like the majority of the resources, uh, natural resources in the world that leads to climate change. It's undeniable that the race and class inequality in the region created an unequal dynamic in who got out before the hurricane and who got stranded in homes, on rooftops, and in hospitals without electricity or clean water. If you had the choice to leave, you fucking left. Um, And those people tended to be white and have money and have access to be able to leave and come back and rebuild. The biggest place we've seen this called out in pop culture recently is, of course, Beyonce's song, Formation. What happened at the New Orleans? When she dropped that, like, those are the first words you hear and those first scenes that you see of Formation. It's like, shit. Formation's video, if you haven't seen it, is full of scenes of a flooded landscape. Beyonce reclines on the top of a New Orleans police car, marooned in a flooded neighborhood, where homes have water up to their windowsills. You know, going back to Lemonade, that was really, it was really like truth-telling. Because, um, what happened after New Orleans? Looking at the science of climate change, in the future, we're in for more and more disasters. Floods caused by wetland destruction and water management projects. Droughts caused by agriculture's drain on aquifers. Hurricanes made far worse by warming seas. We can't see these as just random natural acts. We have to think about the role we humans play in this chaos and how we can help each other survive. We need to learn from it, you know? Um, You know, us, the masses who are going to be affected by it now, you know, This new administration is going to be so much worse when it comes to environmental racism and climate change and contributing to that. And it's going to hit us and we need to be kind of prepared. We need to learn from what didn't happen in Katrina. And like you said, we need to look at socialized, community-led efforts to prevent these things, to uh, protect the environment in places where, you know, black and brown people are uh, living and make sure that they are kind of in charge of their own industries. Writer Bonnie Amore is working on a new series of articles about the human cost and human causes of climate change. The series will be published on our site, bitchmedia.org, in mid-December. Keep an eye out. I can keep up with
A few months ago, I was having dinner with a parent's friends. Old school activists, super political people in the 1970s. These days, they were upset about the current political dynamics, and they asked me, why don't we see young people being political? Why aren't young people political these days? My answer was that young people are political. We're very political. Our engagement in politics just doesn't always look the way it did in the 1970s. Modern-day protests and powerful political disruptions are the subject of journalist Sarah Jaffe's new book, Necessary Trouble, America in Revolt. The book is excerpted in the chaos issue of Bitch as it illuminates and appreciates the values of intentional chaos. My name is Sarah Jaffe. I am a uh, once and future Bitch magazine contributor and a independent journalist and the author of uh, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. And I like that because it's a clear counterpoint to seeing protests as a problem. Like people think of protesters as annoying or they're inefficient or they're dangerous. They should just stop. What kind of trouble do you see as necessary? what isn't necessary at this moment? It's really hard to like go back to what I thought was necessary four weeks ago, a month ago, before this election. Um, And looking now, it's like, oh my God, everything is terrible. But the question of when people sort of turn to disruptive protest is when things are intolerable, right? And that could mean whether um, you have a, 12-year-old kid killed by a police officer, or when you have um, mass foreclosures by banks that don't even necessarily own the mortgage on the home that they're foreclosing on, or you have, you know, 42% of the country makes less than $15 an hour. Um, Any form of sort of intolerable conditions that aren't being addressed by the political methods that we're told we're supposed to use, right, which is basically you go out and vote every one, two, four years, um, and we see how how well that's worked out for us um, in this most recent election. Can you tell me about how you got started on the book? I know you were going to a lot of protests, but when did you start to see that there was a pattern here? Yeah, I started, I got the idea for this book um, way back, sort of after the peak of Occupy Wall Street in 2012. And it was, you know, I've been thinking, and I I have basically been a full-time journalist entirely in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. I had done some work before that, but it wasn't my full-time job. Um, And so, right, it seemed to me that something really drastic had happened there, that the people in power were really not grappling with its impact. And of course, they they weren't because they don't have to be because they're largely insulated from that actual impact. Um, They were not the ones being foreclosed on. And so with that, thinking about the, the situation that people were responding to, which was this you know, dramatic shift in how we think about the political and economic system we live under, um, there was also a shift back towards more direct action, um, dramatic and disruptive protest tactics from the sort of, you know, if, if you think about the, the protests against the Iraq war, for instance, they were very big in many cases, right? You had some of the largest mass marches the world had ever seen against the Iraq war. And that didn't stop it. It didn't work, right, in that way. Um, And so people have turned back to tactics that are, you know, as you say, that many people will condemn as, as unnecessary and inappropriate, but to them are the only way to actually get power to pay attention. Um, And you know, wield power back against the people who have it. 
So how do you see protest working differently today than it did in our parents' generation? Um, I mean, that's an interesting question because some of the tactics that we're seeing used again now do really come out of the 60s period, right? Um, you're seeing the revival of things like sit-ins and sit-down strikes. All those down strikes come from you know our grandparents and great-grandparents period um, during the Great Depression, which was, of course, another period of uprisings in response to massive economic crisis. Um, so, you know, on, on that level, there are a lot of these tactics are things that that come out of periods of, of other periods of uprisings in American history. On another level, you know, we have the Internet now, this fabulous thing that's allowing us to talk to each other right now. And that allows you to go on miscellaneous social media and talk to thousands and thousands of people very quickly and very easily. And so a lot of the movements of the recent years have really been sort of shaped like the Internet is how I think of it. They're shaped like a network. Um, so you have things like Occupy Wall Street that spread really um, horizontally, right, where you had people who saw what was going on in New York, in Portland and in Chicago and in, you know, Fort Wayne, Indiana, say, OK, we're going to have an Occupy in our town and we're going to do largely the same thing, but we're going to tailor it to the conditions, the locations and the particular issues that we're dealing with where we live. Um, and that kind of, of possibility has been really interesting to watch. And then you also see, you know, when something happens in a, a very local um, issue, like the police shootings that have kicked off protests nationwide, again, you know, you saw when um, the police officer who killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, was not um, indicted, there were protests around the country that kicked off the same day. It didn't take weeks. It didn't take you know, sort of somebody from Ferguson going to New York and saying like, hey, we should have a protest here. People just did it. They just responded that quickly because they felt connected to this thing that was going on somewhere else. Sarah, I know you spent a lot of time at different protests and involved in activist communities around the country. So can you talk about how young people are involved in politics and how that engagement is different than it was a generation ago? Yeah, I mean, anybody who asks after this election and why young people are engaged in politics apparently missed the fact that there were high school students walking out of their classrooms around the country in like Phoenix, Arizona and Omaha, Nebraska in the week after the election. Um, young people are very involved. It's just that, again, this this idea of like what's involved in politics um, is very, very narrow in this country. And it's deliberately kept narrow. Right. You are supposed to go out and vote and you get what you vote for or you get what you didn't vote for. And you know, many cases, not just the most recent one. Um, and you are kind of just expected to like sit down and shut up if you don't like it. Um, and then, you know, on the flip side, there are people who can't vote, right? When we're talking about very young people who are under 18 who can't vote, we're talking about people who are undocumented, we're pe talking about people who are disenfranchised because they're convicted felons. There are a lot of people who literally cannot do the thing that you were told is the only way you can get involved in politics. But those people do all sorts of other things um, in order to put pressure on the political system. And so, you know, when we talk about like what is being involved in politics, on this book tour, a lot of people have said to me like, well, when are those Occupy kids gonna like come back and get involved in politics? Like what those people mean is like, why aren't they running for office? And, you know, I mean, that's an interesting question, especially um, after the amount of you know, engagement with young people in like the Bernie Sanders campaign, you know, are people going to see more people running for office? Um, is there going to be a new sort of wave of people who think that maybe that is a way to, to wield power? 
But also, you know, you can be an officer in your labor union. If you're a union member, you can be a person who organizes meetings in your community. You can organize a rally, an action. I think your book really acts as a history of the present moment. I could see it being assigned as reading in 30 years about what activism was like in 2015. So what patterns have you seen emerge in American protests that feel significant to you? As soon as you say this is what protest looks like, um, as soon as I can say that, then somebody else can also say that. Um, then the targets of protest can also say that, and then they know what to expect and they know what to shut down. So um, one of my favorite examples of this is the the mic check um, that people at Occupy Wall Street used, right? And the, the people's mic where people would um, repeat what somebody said in order to make sure the entire crowd could hear it. And this was a tactic that really evolved out of the fact that um, they weren't allowed amplified sound in Zuccotti Park. And so it came out of necessity, but then evolved for people actually using it to disrupt things. So people would go to a meeting. The first time I saw it really effectively used was at the panel for education policy in New York City, where a bunch of Occupy activists went to this meeting and everybody just stood up one by one and would start to say something. And then everybody else who was with the group in the room would repeat it and they would sort of get dragged out one by one. But there were so many of them that you couldn't do that. And it really, in that moment, effectively shut down the meeting. And a year later, I went with a group of people to the Morgan Stanley shareholder meeting, um, the big investment bank, and they tried the same tactic. And basically the bankers just waited for them to be done. And then they went on with their meeting and it did not disrupt anything anymore because they, you know, they knew what was going to happen. They had seen the videos, they knew what the tactic was and they weren't, um, you know, they were no longer really confused and disrupted by it. So, you know, we, we've watched tactics like this um, roll over and over again. You know, there's a few things that, that never go out of style for good reason, like the strike um, refusing to work remains a very powerful um weapon and really something that had really, really declined over the last 30 years, only to, you know, it's it's beginning a comeback now with unions like the Chicago Teachers Union. So, and that's a more traditional strike where you go out and you refuse to work until you get the, um, the bargain that you want from the employer. So you pointed to one concrete way that the tactics of Occupy have filtered out to impact activism today still. People sometimes say that Occupy failed or was pointless or didn't do anything, but I don't feel that way. I feel like it's informed our culture in significant ways, both in giving experience to people who weren't previously involved in politics and in informing the national conversation around um, economic issues. So I'm just wondering, what, what do you think? Do you see ways that Occupy still impacts our society today or not really? No, it, it certainly is... You know, it's present in the fact that now, you know, saying the 99% and the 1% is almost a cliche, right? Everybody talks about the 1% um, as sort of the, you know, the, the the concept that is at the base of why people are angry, um, that there's, you know, the 1% of the population more or less who has um, most of the money and all of the power. Um, and then there are questions of, of um again, of tactics of structure, you know, there were a lot of critics of things like the general assembly model and the, um, the idea of a, you know, quote unquote leaderless movement, but we've watched those, again, these tactics sort of be, um, 
modified and changed and shifted. So when you look at the movement for black lives, there are a lot of um, organizations that do have leadership. Um, they have sort of explicit leadership, but they still also are very um, free flowing and that a lot of people can come in and just, you know, you can organize something. You don't need to, again, you don't need to go ask somebody for permission to do this, to hold an action, to hold a march, to call a rally, to call a meeting. You just do it. And that is, again, you know, it connects to the idea that the internet is the way these things spread now, but also just that, you know, people are really reacting to a moment where it feels like a tiny, tiny group of people have all the power. That was Sarah Jaffe. Her book is called Necessary Trouble, America in Revolt. You can read an excerpt of it in the chaos print issue of Bitch. Popaganda is produced by nonprofit independent Bitch Media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. Love our work and want to pitch in? Become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all of our podcast shows and music reviews, straight to your inbox. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. So if you call yourself a feminist, you've probably at some point had to field this question. You're a feminist, so do you hate men? The question is so willfully ignorant that it's tempting to just respond, yes, yes, I do hate men. In fact, I bathe in the tears of men every evening. And that's actually the route that some feminist artists and writers have been taking, embracing ironic misandry both in hashtags like hashtag kill all men and in consumer products like mugs that read male tears. In the chaos issue, Bitch Media writing fellow Kate Young, who's from Trinidad, Tobago, takes a deep dive look into the meaning and impact of the modern trend of performative man-hating. Hi, I'm Catherine Young, and I'm the current pop culture writing fellow for Bitch Media. And in this issue, you talk a lot about ironic misandry, so sort of performative aspects of man-hating. Can you talk to me about what got you interested in this? When did you like start thinking about uh, ironic misandry? Uh, when I was working with Andy to come up with what my feature piece would be, we had kind of been um, throwing some ideas back and forth, and this was one that she suggested to me. And it kind of piqued my interest because it was something that I had noticed in my dealings online and um, moving through feminist spaces online. It was definitely something that I recognized as not just something that people were doing occasionally, but something that enough women were doing that it was noticeable as a trend. So I'm sure you spent a lot of time looking at products like a mug that says male tears on it and other products that uh, have some performative aspect of misandry. Um, do you have any favorite products or any favorite examples you've seen of this that make you laugh or connect with you? I actually think the male tears mug is my favorite simply because it's so condescending almost. It's like these. this is the product of your pain and suffering, and I'm drinking it because it's delicious. <laughs> um, okay, so in your article, you get into um, the dynamics behind this a bit. But can you just, just talk about that here? Can you talk a little bit about the sort of power dynamics around 
uh, saying, you know what? I am a man hater. I'm going to drink your tears. How does that disrupt what's going on in our culture? Right. Well, I think what it really comes down to is that individually women have little power to disrupt systems. I mean, that's kind of the inherent issue of power. One of us can only do so much to entire institutions. And this is a way to kind of push back on that acknowledgement in a way. It, it lets us say, well, we understand that there's very little that we can do, but we can mock the system. We can mock those who uphold it. And there's little reason for them to retaliate or take that aspect of our lives away from us because it doesn't actually cause any real harm. I mean, you know, that Margaret Atwood quote about women being afraid that men will kill them while men are afraid that women will laugh at them. It's effectively playing right into that by making it a priority to laugh in men's faces simply because it's the most that we can do without actively risking or courting male violence. And I talk a little bit in the piece about how necessary navigating male anger can be for women and how this becomes a way to commiserate about that need and about the realities of having to make sure that we work around men's feelings in a way that doesn't open ourselves up to abuse, but also allows us to carry on with our day-to-day in a way that doesn't perpetuate the systems that oppress us. How do you find these dynamics playing out in your own life? When you talk about being a feminist in your hometown, do you get pushback from guys saying, well, do you hate all men or what about me? Constantly. It's actually a really timely question because currently in the Caribbean, there is a social media movement happening called um, Life in Leggings, hashtag Life in Leggings. And it's effectively a way for West Indian women to talk about some of the ways that sexual violence is a constant threat in their lives, whether it be through outright sexual assault or catcalling. And what we've seen over the last week or so is how vehemently and aggressively men push back on the idea that there are very few women who have not been subjected to sexual violence in some way. It, it's frustrating because as someone who is very steeped in the online feminist movement, I've heard all of these arguments before, but Caribbean countries tend to be much further behind on the spectrum of, of kind of widespread acceptance of feminist ideas and not to say the way we, that we're backwards in any way because most countries definitely have their feminist contingents, but there is less widespread acceptance of ideas such as, you know, the idea that women aren't to blame for their assaults because of what they weigh or because of where they are or because of how late they stay out. And seeing the way that men that I thought were my friends or men that I thought that I was safer around Hearing them say things like men can't control themselves and women should know not to provoke them, it really opens my eyes to how ingrained some of these ideas are and how important and necessary it is for women to show the men around them that it's the very attitudes that they hold that make them a danger to us, even if they don't intentionally mean to be. So a couple of the examples of ironic misandry that you point out in your piece are the hashtag kill all men, which is kind of a punchline that you can add to uh, tweets about something terrible that a man has done or even a crime that a man has committed, say, you know, kill all men, um, as well as consumer products um, about, you know, 
just like joking about hating men. How do you feel like those are a refuge for women who are dealing with what you're dealing with, which is feeling like, you know, you're often dismissed or discouraged when talking about violence? Well, as I discussed in the piece, it's a way of venting frustration. Because one thing that comes up is that when you are when you are a woman who becomes versed in these conversations, the same kinds of excuses come up over and over again. But for the 50th or the 100th man who says to you, well, women should dress differently, you've heard all of the arguments. Saying things like kill all men, it, it helps us to kind of vent to the frustration that comes with having to repeat the same arguments over and over again. It's like an easy way of saying, you know, I'm fed up of having to do this. Let's just get rid of them. Um, I've heard some pushback from male friends as well as female friends of mine saying like, oh, those mugs aren't funny. Those T-shirts aren't funny uh, because we should really be working to get along. And this is such a stereotype that we shouldn't even joke about it. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like that's that's a valid counterpoint or are you just like, eh, get over it? I mean, I'm a very loudmouth black woman. I learned a long time ago to lean into the younger black woman stereotype simply because the function of stereotypes like that are to silence dissent. If I was always concerned about being angry, I would never get anything done because the stereotype exists to prevent me from expressing righteous anger. I think that the same applies to feminists in general. If we're constantly telling men that we don't hate men, we're taking time away from things that are more important, more pressing feminist issues that don't center men's feelings. You do bring up some criticisms in your piece about intersectionality on this. Could you just speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, Zoe Samadzi, I believe she's also a British contributor, wrote a bit about the fact that Kill All Men kind of collapses racial hierarchies and that all men are not equal under patriarchy. Um, Sexism is definitely an issue that the feminist movement fights against, but so is racism and so is ableism and so is transphobia. And we have to recognize that men that live at those intersections also deserve our consideration. Um, So after doing all this research on ironic misandry, is this something that you still um, go around saying or thinking? Are there times when kill all men just crosses your mind or when you just want to drink a bunch of male tears? I mean, yes, my new favorite is more men must die. But um, it really is simply an easy, flippant way that I can blow off some steam. I think that the criticisms are valid and should be considered. But I also think that there's something to be said for allowing women an outlet to express frustration for men that is earned and valid in a way that doesn't actually hurt them is another way for us to kind of build solidarity so that we know that our experiences aren't singular and that we aren't making them up. That was Kate Young, Bitch Media's 2016 Writing Fellow in Pop Culture. So let's go back to Toni Morrison. Chaos contains information. Each disruption, each upset, each terrible derailing of perfectly laid plans, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Even a lightning strike comes from somewhere. 
it feels like we're in a more chaotic time than usual. Like, even the people who are supposed to be experts don't know what's going on or what's ahead. It's scary. But without that fear, that very real and valid fear, what can we learn? What can we see that we couldn't see before? How can we learn from chaos? Music on today's show comes from awesome electric indie group Ila Bamba, who have a brand new album called O Hostel Soul. It's so good, check it out. Propaganda is meticulously transcribed by Cheryl Green of Storyminders. We're proud to make propaganda accessible to people who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find transcripts of every propaganda episode at the podcast tab on our website, bitchmedia.org. To close us out of this chaotic show, this week's listener note comes in the form of a postcard, an actual, honest-to-God, snail mail postcard that listener Alicia Seville mailed to our office after listening to the show about 10 ways to resist Donald Trump. She wrote, Your episode, 10 Ways to Resist Donald Trump, reignited my hope. Thank you for reminding me that resistance comes in many forms and that community is key to how I and we act in the next few years. Keep your notes and your iTunes reviews and your Twitter mentions and your postcards coming. They really keep us going. They reignite some hope. Earn your women, gender, and sexuality studies degree online. Explore the role of race, social class, age, ability, appearance, and sexual identity. Play in women's everyday lives. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit, feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.